Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> My name's Tyler, one of the pastors here uh, at Sovereign Hope, and uh, we are glad that you have joined us today, uh, wherever it is you're doing it. Um, but this is uh, unique, and you've heard me say, I'm even looking right now to a sanctuary like I normally would, and there's like uh, five people in here. Uh, and it's, it's been a weird morning for me to emotionally be in here. It's been weightier than I thought it would be. And uh, what we want during this period, where we don't know how long it'll be like this, is we want this to be a wonderful resource for you guys, but we don't want it to replace anything. And I hope this morning you've already realized it can't replace anything, whether it's uh, the emptiness of not wanting to sing because maybe you're alone in your apartment and no one else is there and you'd look weird, um, or it'll come later when we stand up and we together, but not together, recite the Apostles' Creed. Um, And that's because this is similar to uh, a military family who's been separated by deployment. Uh, We want the, the ability to talk to our loved one over video, but in no way is that ever a replacement for what happens when we gather back together. And so we hope that, uh, like a couple, uh, separated by geography during a time of service, uh, while we are set apart right now, this conversation is good and it is encouraging, but it actually just makes us long for when we can come back together. To enjoy this too much is to miss the point of what the church is. And that's even why we just have Johnny playing and not a full band. We want it to have some sort of dissonance to what is normally shared in the congregation that gathers. And so if there are times today that feel awkward uh, for you, that is good. We want it to feel awkward because this is not how it's supposed to be. Um, We are supposed to be gathered with our families, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we understand why we can't and we get that it's temporary, but it makes us long to come back together. And so uh, with that said, I'm going to um, lead us in prayer and we're gonna dive into God's good word for us today. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you are. Um, We thank you that you are in control of history, that you are working to accomplish your works, that even as 1 Peter opens, that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Not one second of where we are today is apart from your plan to purify your church and to increase your glory among the nations. So we pray today as we continue in 1 Peter, we are reminded of how wonderfully true your word is in all circumstances. And so we submit this time to you in your name. Amen. Amen. Do we need to switch mics, guys? Is there a ringing or are we good? We're good. All right. Um, If you guys have ever traveled before, you've heard the phrase, do as the locals do. It's that constant piece of advice that you get when traveling. My wife and I, most of our traveling adventures rotate around where are we going to eat. We could be in the most wonderful place uh, in terms of geography, but we just want to find good places to eat. And so we go, we ask where our taxi driver wants to eat, and we ask him what he would eat when he gets there. And today, in First Peter, Peter's going to make it very clear that while doing as the locals do might be a great way to make it as a tourist, is a lousy way to live as a Christian. Peter's point today is that we should not, as believers, act as the world acts, but we should act in accordance to our identity as Christians. 
an identity which Peter has already reminded us of in the very first verse where he writes to the elect exiles, meaning if you are a believer, you belong to God and you do not belong to the world. You live in the world, you relate in the world, but our belonging, our identity, our hope is in what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Christians are strangers in a foreign land. And starting in our text today, Peter is beginning a longer passage that's going to go through the next couple chapters of pointing the places where Christians as elect exiles are culturally distinct, not just from American culture or Western culture or African culture, but from all cultures. Because the center of our culture is not an ethnicity, a language, or a nationality, but the center of our culture is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you've sometimes wondered why it is that Christians are distinct. Why it is they live so differently. And sometimes we realize that difference for bad when someone with a Christian bumper sticker cuts you off in traffic. And other times, this is something that is good. I know people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ in our own body who, while they were non-believers, saw the distinctions inside of a Christian marriage and realized there was something unique behind it. There are those who in your work will notice how Christians respond differently to things like coronavirus, differently to things like the passing of a loved one, who maybe who just have a unique joy. And why is it that whether in joys or in recreations, Christians are different? Well, to answer your question, it has to do with the nature of our hope and how that hope affects us. And on the flip side, if you're a Christian, you perhaps ask yourself the question, why do I have to be different? Why is it that sometimes I'm called to act differently? That there will be times in following Jesus where in specific context to continue to obey Christ is to look odd by worldly standards. This could be in terms of the career you choose. It could be in terms of your relationship. It could be in how you consume or are entertained during this period. And in those moments, I'm sure you've had and you will have as you follow Jesus, Times where you feel like a foreigner standing in the midst of a culture that is different. And you will feel the pressure to relieve that tension by doing as the locals do. We hope, when we do that, that in acting like the world, liking like the world, loving like the world, that it relieves the tension that our apparent lack of belonging has created. Our alien nature has made us to stand out. And so we want to belong to it. We say in those moments when we cave to that, we say, well, I can still think Christianly. I can still believe Christianly. I can still go to church in a Christian way. But externally, we try to minimize the signs of our strangeness. But Peter, in our passage today, actually comes to those people who are in those moments of tension, in those moments where the distinctions of Christianity are becoming more manifest, and he provides for us a better option than doing as the locals do. Because he provides a better hope. In the face of a world which finds Christians exceedingly strange, Peter tells us not to hide our distinction as elect exiles. Why? Because we have a better hope. Because there's something better for us in looking like Christ than there is in looking like the world. And that's because Christian conduct is driven by Christian hope. And it's only when we understand this can we actually have comfort in uncertain times. And this uncertain time that Peter was writing to uh, matches with our uncertain times today in different ways, due to different causes, Christians always feel uncomfortable. 
And he's going to show us three things today that Christians are to be. Christians are to be hopeful. Christians are to be holy. And Christians are to be hopeful about their holiness. Those are the three things we're to look at. Christians being hopeful. Christians being holy. And Christians being hopeful in their holiness. And so I want to reread the text that Stephen read for us today, which is 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He that is Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So here we see Peter opening up this passage by commanding Christians to be hopeful. That's the first point we look at today. Christians, those saved by grace through faith in Jesus, are to be hopeful. And Peter calls us not only to be hopeful, but to, be, to, or, but to set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of all things. Now, the actual words used in the Greek, uh, your, most translations streamline it, streamline it a little bit. But it actually reads like this, verse 13. It says, therefore, girding up the loins of your mind, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Girding up the loins of your mind. What your ESV says, preparing your mind for action. And I love how Peter puts this substantive value on Christian hope. The the mind picture Peter brings when we talk about the Christian hope is a man who, whether to go into a fight or to go for a run during Peter's day, is tying up his tunic into a machismo diaper so he can run unencumbered. Maybe in a Missoula context, those of you who ride your bikes to work or to school, it is to roll up your pant leg so that it doesn't get caught in the gears when you're riding your bike. That's what it means, preparing your mind for action, to move unencumbered. And this stems from, right, there's a therefore to this wonderful hope of the gospel Peter expounded for us in verses 3 through 12. If you weren't here last week, it'll take you a little bit. Spend time afterwards today, maybe in reflection, to go back and read those verses We saw that in light of this wonderful work that Jesus has done, he has stored up for us an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for us. So that we might reach the end. So that when all is said and done, we might obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. All of that comes when Jesus comes back to take his church. All that comes back, not when we gather again as Sovereign Hope Church, But all that comes when we gather together as God's whole church in God's presence in the new heavens and the new earth. And only then will all the tension, all the pain be resolved in our life. And what Peter is doing is he's 
preparing Christians. He's fitting you with a future mindset that what we want, we will never fully have in this world, but we will have one day when Christ comes and makes all things new. And one of the biggest mistakes, we talked about this last week, that you can make as a Christian is to think that our reward is not in the future. The biggest mistake we make is to forget this future reward. And so it's true, there's this tension. We can have confidence in our salvation now. Yes, we can have wonderful union with God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ now. Yes, there is wonderful joy. Joy inexpressible, Peter says, right now and yet... Think of the greatest joy you have had rejoicing in the gospel, knowing God's nearness, feeling the love of Jesus. That is nothing compared to the joy which will one day be ours when Jesus comes back to bring us home forever with him. And here Peter says, because you have that certain hope, it is done. It is finished. It cannot wear. It is untouched by culture. It is not in doubt. Lace up your shoes, hike up your shorts, and do whatever it takes to get from here to there at all costs. Whatever it takes to get there. Having that hope, be ready to act. Be ready to go. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The summary of these authors is that we must have this Christian hope. We must look at Jesus, and then we will endure. In other words, we cannot fully set our hope in Jesus unless our actions are willing to follow suit. Do you have hope in Jesus? It's a question Peter's asking. And if you do have hope in Jesus, then Peter says your actions will follow. He says, prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded. Don't expect this to be easy. Expect this to be hard. Be sober about it. But in light of that hope, Keep your eyes on Jesus and keep moving forward. Keep your eyes. Know that what he will make right will satisfy everything you need. And it's so important to notice what Peter is doing in this text because if we miss what Peter's doing, the same thing was said last week, if we miss what's happening in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, the rest of 1 Peter will always be frustrating to us. If we lose sight of the Christian hope, following Jesus will always be frustrating for us. Because in our text today, Peter gives three imperatives in the Greek, three commands. He's going to command us to be holy. He's going to command us to conduct ourselves in fear, reverent fear before God. And then he's going to command us, the very first command, to set your hope fully on Jesus. If you do not set your hope fully on Jesus, you are missing the weight of Paul's command. And everything else will be unbearable. For Peter, hope is not a nice byproduct of salvation. For Peter, hope is the very heart of our salvation. And I think this is a really fresh and revealing perspective for us to consider today. If you were to ask us today, if you're asked those sitting in your living room with you right now, do you believe in Jesus? 
Do you have faith in Jesus as your Savior, your exclusive Savior? I'm imagining most listening today would say yes. And if I asked alternatively, do you think that there's anything else in all the world that can be your exclusive Savior? You would say no. When it comes to faith and belief, we would pass the doctrinal exam. But here Peter, Paul talks often using faith and faith faith and belief. Paul is this systematic, linear thinker. But if we look at Peter in the Gospels, Peter is this emotional wrecking ball just rolling through the narrative. And Peter here doesn't provide a doctrinal exam. He provides an emotional exam. His question is not, is your faith in Jesus? His question is, is your hope in Jesus? You see, hope knowingly occupies our hearts. And while we can say on a doctrinal exam, yes, I believe Jesus is the only exclusive way to heaven. By him taking my sins through faith, I'm saved. He says, but let me take this one step further. Do you hope? Do you have your hope fully set on Jesus? In that you know that because of what will come in glory, You don't need anything else but him to make it there. You don't need anything else but that hope in Jesus to satisfy you in the trials of this life. You don't need anything else other than that hope in Jesus to fix your vision and your goals and your love and your life and your giving and your family and your home. And whatever it is, Jesus is sufficient. Or do you have hope in Jesus but some hope in finding love in this world? Yes, I can make it to the end of glory. Yes, I know that one day Jesus will give me everything I want, but I need to find a spouse. Or do you say, yes, I believe that Jesus can get me there, but I will be discontent with that unless I have a home. I'll be discontent with that unless I have the job I want. Yes, I have hope in Jesus, but I also have hope that I can meet Instagram standards of family and adventure. And if I do that, then I know I can endure all these things things. You see, it's so easy for us to blend our hopes. That's why I appreciate seasons like the seasons we're experiencing globally right now with the coronavirus. Because for most of us, this isn't testing our faith. Most of us have faith that is unshaken by what's going on. This isn't causing us to doubt that God is in control This isn't causing us to doubt that God is good. This isn't causing us to doubt that God is capable. But what it is testing is our hopes, isn't it? It's testing what we think we need to get to the end. And it's quite revealing. You see, sometimes we can wrongly think that faith and belief are merely mental affirmations. But hope, hope shapes our actions. Hope is faith revealed. What is the hope that your faith is revealing in this time, in your home, in your work, and on social media? Because here Peter, for the fourth time already in in this letter, is reminding us of a certain hope. If you get online today, you see hopes galore 
What is our hope with the coronavirus? Is it a vaccine? Is it flattening the curve? Is it just getting past this initial blow up? What is it? But here Peter says, there is a hope for certain that will not change. It is just waiting to be given on God's timing. And that hope is that Jesus has already done everything necessary to save you and restore you to God. And that one day he will not only spiritually restore you like you are right now, but he will physically restore you. He will remove the brokenness of this world and create the world we were meant to live in before we doubted that God was good. And if we have such a hope, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.12, because we have such a hope, we live boldly. We don't have to do like the locals do. Why? Because we have a better hope than the world has. A certain hope. One that isn't touched by something so small that it cannot be seen, but is safe, kept in heaven for us. And what does such bold living look like? What does it look like to live boldly in light of this hope? Holiness. That's the point that Peter makes. This is our second point today. Not only are Christians to be hopeful, but Christians are to be holy. Read with me verses 14 through 17. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so here, Peter begins to use this word holy. Be holy, and it looks like changing your conduct. It looks like living in fear of God. But what does holiness mean? I don't want to assume that we know it because if we don't know what holiness means, it actually uh, is a stumbling block for us to live in a holy way. Holiness often means in our minds perfection. When we think of holy, we think of perfection. And so if that's our only category for holiness, when we hear calls to holiness... We hear calls to perfection, and we begin to downplay those because we know we're never going to be perfect here on this earth, right? How many times have you said or have those around you said, well, I'm never going to be perfect, or I'm always going to be a sinner? In light of that, we look at these calls to holiness, and we say, yeah, I understand that's the ideal, but we're imperfect. We're broken. And while the word holy does communicate in some senses, in some places, a sense of perfection or completeness. Holy more naturally and more frequently in Scripture simply means to be consecrated, to be set apart. To be holy in a Christian context is to be set apart by God and for God. It is therefore to be distinct from what is not holy It is to no longer be set apart to the world, no longer be set apart to your passions, no longer be set apart to whatever it is, but it's to be set apart to God. I am not a perfect husband, and yet I am a husband. I am not a perfect husband, but just because I'm not a perfect husband does not mean that I can easily go looking for another woman. Why? Because I've been set apart in marriage for Sarah. I, in all of my weaknesses, in all of my limitations, in all of my uh, oddities, I have been consecrated for service exclusively to her. It changes the direction of everything I'm doing. 
And when God covenants himself to us through Jesus Christ, he consecrates us for himself. He sets us apart. We might become increasingly closer to perfect, and you will become increasingly close to perfect, but we will not be perfect here on this earth, but we can be holy. We can be set apart. We can become increasingly distinct. And Peter makes two cases as to why we, even though we are imperfect, should strive to be holy, and we'll talk about both of them. He calls, makes the case first that God is holy, and he makes the case second that God is judge. Because God is holy, we should be holy, and because God is judge, we should conduct ourselves in light of his verdict and not our own. But we need to remember that God is holy and God is judge is not the only category he provides Christians to think about holiness. And this is where we really need to pay attention to what Peter is saying because this is what separates a right gospel view of God's call to holiness and a wrong man-centered view of legalism. Sometimes if anybody calls you to act holy, we put, we like sprinkle holy water on them and call them legalists. So how do we handle God's calls to holiness without being legalistic? We read the Bible, okay? We don't need to be scared of the Bible. The Bible's not going to lead us into legalism if we see what the Bible is saying. Legalism says this, if I want to be saved, I need to look like God, right? Be holy as I am holy. So I need to begin to increasingly become morally pure. I need to do, because God is judge, increasingly good deeds so that when all is said and done, I could stand before God and pull out my track record and sure I'll have some bad, but on a whole, if the good can outweigh the bad, the judge will declare me good. That's a pretty sound logic if a judge's job was to declare people good. But that's not the job of a judge. The judge isn't told to consider if this is a good person or if this is a bad person. A judge exists to declare guilt or innocence. And even if you do all of the good things, to have sinned once is to be guilty. And you can't cover that up, not even if you have a time machine. The Bible says that we are born sinners. We have all broken the law. But this is where we must notice where holiness and a gospel understanding of works actually starts. Because in these calls to holiness, look at how Peter begins in verse 14 with the affirmation, as obedient children. And then in verse 17, he continues, if you call on him as father. Peter assumes that we have not been made holy by our own actions, but that for the believer, God has already called you into holiness, into his family through salvation. Just as we saw in Deuteronomy, grace always precedes law. God did not say, hey, Israel, hope you like Egypt. If you don't, obey me and I'll bring you out. He brought them out of Egypt and then he gave them his law. He said, here I am. I am your God. I love you. This is how you will act now. So too for the Christian, calls to holiness always start with God's plan to adopt us through Jesus Christ. And because of that adoption, We have a new family. We have a new namesake. And our actions are here being called to follow suit. This is what Peter says in this calling us to live out our new identity in verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If we're preparing our minds for action, if we're thinking soberly about um, our conversion, we should expect that our old sin nature, our old world, our old passions do not automatically lose their voice. They don't automatically become unattractive to us just because we've been called by grace. Peter says that those influences of who you once were will continue to attempt to conform your passions, to draw you back, to change it. And the word here actually implies something of a mold or a model. The real temptation is that our world offers to take us as this lump of clay and shape us into something that is truly special. It promises to shape us into a model of contentment, a model of success, a model of satisfaction, and we know how hard those calls can be because we can look inside ourselves and we see how broken, how discombobulated, and how out of place our life is. And we just want something to bring us definition, something that we could say, this is who I am and this is what I look like. And sin presents attractive and comfortable restraints to shape us into the nature of whatever our idol is. But Peter says such calls stem from ignorance. We did not know any better. Like children, our sin causes us to operate only according to our limited view of this world, which is limited at best. But God, as a good father, comes to his children with knowledge of a better way. God's grace shakes us from our ignorance. It shakes us from our wrong view of thinking that this is what lasts. We sin because we think it will work. But it's only when God calls out to us and shows us a better way that our life begins to change. Because God is a speaking God, those who have been called by him are no longer ignorant. God has called into your ignorance. In fact, the Greek word for church, ekklesia, means gathering. No one's here with me. (laughs) That's what it means. It means a gathering. And it's actually taken from two Greek words, the prefix ek, which means out, and the Greek word or root kaleo, which means called. And so this gathering is at its nature a gathering of the called out ones. And it is this because during that day, the gatherings, that's why the church, while the church can be so much more than a gathering, you cannot reduce it to not gathering. And it's called the ecclesia because during this ancient period, officials, emperors, judges would call people, their constituents would call their council, and when that council had assembled at the call, they were the ecclesia, they were the called out ones. And the church is a gathering of those who have been called out of ignorance by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only way we can resist the conforming constraints of our world is to hear more clearly the good news of him who has called us to himself, who has called us holy, not according to the world's mold, but according to the nature of our Savior who died for us. When the world says, look like this, the gospel calls out and says, look at this God. Look at what he has called you to do. Look at how he has called you his children through the wonderful worth of the gospel of Jesus. And as this father, the one who called us is holy, Peter says, you too as children of light must walk in his nature. 
You should look like the mold of Christ, not the mold of this world. He's a holy God who through faith has called us to himself so that we might be like him. And this holiness, Peter's going to define in the next few times we gather in 1 Peter. He's going to talk about how holiness shapes our love of each other, how our holiness shapes our goals in living, how our holiness shapes our service, our benevolence, and even our suffering. We at Sovereign Hope, our slogan is gospel change for all of life, and that's not new, and that's not wonderfully inventive. That's precisely what the gospel says Jesus' work does, is it makes everything different and everything distinct. And I think there's a unique point of application where Peter says here, be holy in all of your conduct that we ought to consider today in our COVID-19 world. Many of us are working from home during this season, those of you who are afforded that option. And as Christians working from home, our work from home should be distinctly Christian. Meaning just because our bosses cannot see Just because Netflix and Twitter and a wonderfully sunny Missoula spring are clicks away, we know that we are called to be holy as God is holy. And that means that when we are on the clock, we work as if working for the Lord and not for men. I think of what an amazing witness God has brought us in this cultural time where employers might notice the distinct quality of work that continues to emanate from the Christians in their business. May this be a time where we stand up and show that we have a different hope. Our hope is in obeying God in all things. Our hope is in living for his glory in all things, and that includes our work. And all of this, whether it's at work or whether it's in sin, is called into account not just because God is holy, but because God is a holy judge. That's what he says in verse 17. Why should we be holy? Because if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That is reverent fear of this God who can give a verdict based off each one's deeds. How essential do you think holiness is to Christians? Again, that's a difficult question because we always equate holiness with legalism. And we say, does God require me to do things? And if we answer that question with a yes, we think it's legalistic. But it's only legalistic if we invert the order of grace. If we say grace leads to works, that's gospel. If we say works leads to grace, that's legalism. And look at how central works and holiness is to those who have received grace. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says this. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Luke chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And here in 1 Peter 1.17, he gives a hypothetical. If you call on him as father, then you should know that your father expects your work to be that of a son. That we should increasingly learn to put off what is displeasing to God and put on what is pleasing to him. And here's another practical application for our church in its current state. 
for many of us, this isolation from gathering or from community groups, even if you do that via video, is a breeding ground of the bacteria of sin. There's secrecy. There is security. There's limited eyes to see what's going on. And there's an increased fear and anxiety in our world. And because of that, we can begin to feel that it is safe to sin or that we have no power to resist sin. But do not forget in those moments that God has called you to something better, that he has purchased you so that you might no longer be conformed to your ignorance. Don't think in ignorance, but hear what God has done. Because I promise you there will be times in however many weeks which lay ahead of us that the temptation to look at pornography the temptation to lose your temper when quarantined at home with children, the temper to give in to fearful anxieties or paranoia might seem so incredibly strong that it would appear that you cannot resist. But look at the wonderful hope that Peter gives us in verses 17 through 21. Conduct yourself, and if you call on the Father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Yes, we will be judged for every work that we do, but here's the wonderful hope of the gospel. For the believer, it is Jesus's work and Jesus's deeds and his perfect life and his sacrifice on the cross, which has effectively and efficiently ransomed us from the futile deeds of sin. This is our last point today. Christians are to be hopeful in their holiness. Christians are called to hope. Christians are called to be holy. But we should actually be hopeful in our holiness. In other words, living as a holy people is living as a hopeful people. And holiness, when we see it in our lives, remind us that we have been made holy by Jesus. You see, the truth is, is that everyone in this world, Christian or not, understands that they are in exile. This is what drives us to whatever our idols are. We know that something needs to be made right. And even if that person in life says that they are perfect, their tombstone will say something else. And in everything we do, we try to remedy our exile. We try to find belonging. We try to substitute hope. And it breeds into fervor in all things. To have hope, you need to be sexually liberated. To have hope, you need to own a house. To have hope, you need to be affirmed. In order to have hope, you got to have all the toilet paper. Whatever it is, we see the foolishness and the unceasing pace at which this world offers hope after hope after hope after hope, which means between each hope of the world is the reality of brokenness. That that hope provided nothing. And now you start again. Why do we go to sin? Why do we listen to the ignorance of the world? Because we hope it can help. But this world provides no hope 
why would we conform to it? Why, when faced with that tension, would we do as the locals do? This life, according to the world, is a rat race doomed from the start. It can't fix our greatest problem. I love how the psalmist describes this in Psalm 49, verses 10 through 12. It says this, For he, this is the wise man, sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their home forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. So here Peter says, you've seen those who get rich. You've seen those who have homes. You've seen those who have had, had all the sexual satisfaction they could have. And what happens at the end? They die. The land they own goes to somebody else. Their sexual satisfaction means nothing as their body rots away in the grave. And yet, look what he says next. Verse 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Foolish hope. And yet, after them, people approve of their boasts. Open up a history book. You will see that wealth land, women in whimsy, has never spared anyone their life. And yet, how many of us confirm their boasts? How many of us secretly think that, well, if I had that, plus Jesus, then I'd be content? You see, we so easily boast in the foolish hopes of our world. Don't get me wrong, it's not wrong to want these things. God has made homes, God has made houses, God has made family, God has made us to desire to be comfortable, but it becomes wrong when we think that any of those things are needed things when it comes to reaching the finish line of faith. It is when they get elevated to that standard that this becomes false hope, which will at best frustrate you when you realize it cannot get you there. And at worst, it will crush you when you turn away from the hope offered in Jesus and you try to find hope in the world. But this is where the wonderful news of Jesus comes in. Psalm 49, verses 14 through 15. Like sheep, they, that is the rich, are appointed for Sheol. That's the Hebrew word for the grave. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in shale with no place to dwell, but God will ransom my soul from the power of shale, for he will receive me. This world has no hope to receive you, no hope to ransom you from your futility, no hope to solve the problem of your exile, but God will ransom our souls. God will free us from the foolish hopes of the world. Our world tells us, do as the locals do. Do this and you'll find satisfaction. And to not do it, we are going to mock you or maybe even persecute you when you do not frantically find hope in the hope that I'm telling you to find hope in. But we don't have to play their game. Because Jesus has ransomed us from fruitless hopes by his blood. Our sin demanded death, death in ignorance, and it would have been wonderfully satisfied to accept your death as your payment for it. 
But Jesus in his mercy came and died for you so that you might be ransomed from the futile ways of thinking and instead see the wonder of God's hope. This is the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross in 1 Peter 20 through 21. Peter now begins to proclaim the excellencies of this Jesus. He says, this Jesus, this sacrifice was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Jesus shows us the hope of holiness. We can say no to sin because sin no longer has power over us. We have been ransomed. We have been delivered. We no longer have to live in fervent futility, hoping that our hope works. Instead, Jesus shows us the final reward of it. His perfect and spotless sacrifice paid for your debt. It solved the problem. But more than that, this Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He went to glory. He now has glory. And what, Peter says, this marvelous thing. Why does he do all of this? He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Is it true that God sent Jesus to magnify his glory? Yes and amen. But is it true that everything Christ did in being made manifest as the perfect one to obey dying as the imperfect sacrifice, that it was for us. Yes, that we might see that everything this world tries to offer us through conformity to itself, Christ has already purchased by his blood and given to you. He is living with glory. Everything we want, Jesus has stored up for us in heaven, in himself. If only we would get there by faith. If only we would trust him. What staggering beauty of the encouragement of Jesus for you. That you can say no. That he knows this world is imperfect. Here in this empty church, this is imperfect. But even at its fullest, this church is not meant to be perfect. It is not meant to satisfy. Only Jesus does. And he will. Not in this momentary life but in the depth of blissful eternity. And why has he done this? So that our faith and hope might be in God. As ominous as it might seem to set our faith fully on what we cannot see, Jesus has come so that we can do it. To open our eyes to the wonder of the God who receives us through Jesus and frees us from a rat race of futility. Now here's the real catch. Peter's writing to churches. Living as a hopeful and holy church has always been God's design. This is why the church was to gather every week. We were to gather because we need help being hopeful and we need help being holy. Look at how the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of what? Of our hope. Good news for those who are hopeless. We're going to hold fast together. And let us 
uh, without wavering. Sorry, I'm picking up in verse 23. So it's not on the screens, but this verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So here we have hope and we have works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is almost thematically the exact same thing Peter is saying, but at the heart of it is good news. God's given you the church. And now we can't meet. And now we can't gather. And now it's become a little more complicated. This can be a really unfortunate passage when at this time such a divine and necessary gift is being removed. But take heart because despite how wonderfully purchased, purified, collected, and assembled the local church is. The local church is not Jesus. We love the church. The church is essential to following Jesus. But the church and her community is not what ransomed you. If you were to take a scientific survey of inventions and innovations, you would notice that breakthroughs almost always follow a new method of measuring something. The pendulum clock, when it was invented, allowed us to measure time in an observable, consistent way. It quantified it, and this clock led to revolutions in labor laws, revolutions in factories, because we were able to measure what was before unable to be measured with great accuracy. A system invented to measure heat led to breakthroughs in heating and air conditioning, which now has allowed people to live in parts of the world which we never were able to live in before. Whether measuring light or sound or pressure, one scholar says this, he says, new ways of measuring almost always imply new ways of making. And in this passage we just read, Peter provided a measurement of grace which sets us up for breakthroughs in holiness. We were redeemed by the perfect blood of Jesus. Not by something like silver or gold, but by something invaluable. And this wonderful gift gives you chaos in the quarantine of a family home or in the isolation of a secluded apartment. For this grace is all the innovation you need to still be restored to God, to still hear his call, to still live for his holiness. And the only distinction is it might take a little more intentionality to get there in this time. It might require a little more girding of the loins. It might require a little more action, a little more determination, because God has removed the wonderful gift of the church. And I hope we feel this without falling into sin. I hope we're able to do this. Charles Spurgeon, who pastored in uh, a a great epidemic in London in 1854. Uh, I don't know if this was during this time. I don't know if, if his church had to stop meeting when he said this. But notice what he says. And you take heart when it comes to living out holiness in a time where the church cannot meet. 
He says, I pray we will seek after a spiritual life that is never dependent on outward ordinances. It is a great comfort to be able to hear the word faithfully preached, but suppose we are placed where there is no preaching of the word. Then it will be a happy circumstance if our godliness can survive such a deprivation. It would be a grand thing to be able to go to our Bible and our knees and draw near to God alone and so grow strong enough to send our branches over the walls by blessing others and beginning to teach a priest Christ. The Lord's Supper is a sacred ordinance. And I would have us come to the Lord's table as often as we can, but where we are, where no person is near with whom we could break bread, may we have divine grace to feed on Jesus himself. Spiritual life loves outward ordinances, but if it is deprived of them, it survives in their absence. So church, we are in a time of absence, not only as elect exiles, but exiles from elect exiles. But in this time, Jesus is wonderfully sufficient. So what ought we to do? We ought to drive ourselves deeply into the grace of this Christ, who according to the calling of God was a ransom for sinners. And we ought to be holy as he is holy and consider how to stir up others in this immediate to do the same. For while we might not be the church gathered, we are a church still purchased by Jesus. And that grace is sufficient to change us, to say no to this world, and to say yes to his mercy. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we pray that you help us to see how essential holiness is, but then to see how you have already made us holy. It is not our works that set us apart. It is Jesus' work. He has put us on a new path with new life and new legs. And now let us run with perseverance the race set out for us. Lord, in the seclusion or in the chaos that this time brings, we pray that you help us to say no to the world because there is no hope there. But instead, to live out our identity as Christian exiles, knowing that we were not purchased by what is perishable, but by the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without spot or blemish. And let us rejoice. We pray this in your name. Amen.